0: So we continue in our second week of our Advent series of birth announcements. Our text that we're going to be focusing on this morning are verses 17 through 19. For the sake of our context, we'll begin our reading in verse 14. Hear the word of God. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, as we come, we give thanks to you for this word. And pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes, our hearts. And impress this word into our very being. That it may shape us in thought, in heart, and ultimately in response. Lord, make us yours, that we may honor you. Bless us that through this we may experience the joy that we long for. We pray in Christ. Amen. I don't know about you, but I always find it a rather curious thing, the way people are always interested in the size of newborns, as if that's going to have any bearing on the size that they're ultimately going to be. For instance, in our family, I believe Rebecca was the largest born, uh, largest uh, child born, uh, larger than I was being born, but in God's mercy, she won't ever be even half my stature. And nevertheless, we're curious about these things, and so on any birth announcement that you are likely to see or to receive, along with a name, you'll find the length of the child and the weight of the child at its birth. During this Advent season, we're looking at the most important birth announcement, the announcement of the babe of Bethlehem. What we're doing is really playing on the items that you're going to find on any typical birth announcement, and yet we're going to look at biblical concepts that are related to those themes. Last week, we looked at the name, Jesus. He shall be called Jesus, which we looked at and recognize is a Greek translation from the Hebrew of the word Joshua, which means he shall save his people from their sins, and we're reminded that Jesus Christ has saved us through his coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection that gives us hope. Next week, we'll look at the time of, uh, of Christ's uh, birth and the significance that that has for us. But this morning, I do want to look at the size of Christ, another important piece of information that's found on birth announcements. Now, obviously, we have no idea of the weight or the length of the body of Jesus when he was born, we even have, we have no idea of what he looked like physically during his life. There are no sketches, no pictures of any type uh, that would tell us what he looked like. And very few sketches, uh, sketchy uh, comments in terms of the scripture to help us to gain any understanding. And that's probably a good thing because our penchant for idolatry, if we actually knew what Jesus looked like through pictures or drawings, then many of us would be inclined to then bow before that picture or to worship the picture in some way, or if we knew what he looked like, then because we tend to think that somehow that we're perfectionists and that there's spiritual perfection of being like Jesus, we would assume that those who had the features of Jesus, they were, they were the ones who were doing well, and those who looked nothing like what he looked like, were either out to lunch or you would make some plastic surgeon very, very happy and wealthy because we would just all aspire to have the external trappings of Christ. And God, in His mercy and in His wisdom, chose not to give us any of these detail, details. All He has shown us is what Christ's character was like and saying that we are growing to be like Him. And so it's not about the physical trappings. Nevertheless, there is something of the size of Christ, even though we don't know what He looked like or anything about His life, His, uh, his, his uh, stature in, in life, and certainly not at the point of His birth. There is something about the size of Christ that we do know that is revealed and permeates all of Scripture, and that's the size of his heart. And that's really what Paul is not only describing here, what he's doing is he's praying that we who know Christ or are known by Christ would grow to understand the height and length and depth and width of the love that God has for us, that Jesus has for us, that has been demonstrated perfectly in the person of Christ. And so what we want to do this morning is to just consider those dimensions of the love of God as it's been revealed to us in the Scripture, that we can ponder it during this Advent season and allow that to shape our thoughts, our prayers, our lives. Paul begins by saying that he prays that we would have an understanding of the breadth or the width of Christ's love. Some people say that Christianity is very narrow. Certainly there are exclusive claims. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Very exclusive, very specific, in some ways very narrow claims. And Yet I don't think that Christianity is narrow at all. Because what Jesus also says, despite the fact that, the, that he is the only way, is Jesus declares, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And elsewhere, Jesus says, uh, or as the end of Revelation tells us, and the Lord says to this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, and let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of water and of life. And so while Christianity, Jesus makes very exclusive claims that are very narrow, that he is the only hope and the only way, nevertheless, that truth is broadly cast to all who are invited to come. There's an invitation that it's extended to all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been illustrate that point, we can go to the manger in Bethlehem and kind of peek in to the stable. And if you do peek in, what you see there, at least as you look at Luke's account of it, is surrounding the manger which, uh, that contains the, uh, and is holding the Christ child is a group of people, a group of shepherds. And this is both interesting and important Because according to Jewish tradition, shepherds were almost the bottom rung occupationally and sociologically. In short, if you are a shepherd, you're a loser. One historian puts it this way. Shepherds were below tax collectors and just above dung sweepers. So of all the occupations that there are in that society, there was only one group of people that was considered socially less, socially less acceptable. Tax collectors, people who were despised, who were hated, whose job it was to go to collect from their fellow Jews, their neighbors, and sometimes rip them off in order to hand that money over to the Romans, the enemies of the Jewish people, people who for a living betray their own people. Shepherds were a little worse than them. You've been more likely to have a tax collector as a friend and at your Christmas party than you would to have a shepherd. You just didn't associate with shepherds. And yet, it is the shepherds who were the first to be in the presence of the king of kings, the God who was born to be like us. And that's important for us to consider because some of you here perhaps feel unloved today. And This season heightens that as you feel alone or you find yourself in conflict, whatever it may be that leaves you to feel unloved. And when we consider the reality of that picture at the manger, it, it declares to us it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been or where you come from. It doesn't even matter what you have done. The love of God... As demonstrated in Christ, spans wider than you do, wider than you can imagine. So, no matter how far outside of acceptability you feel, no matter how much of an outcast uh, you may be, we, we see this picture of Christ born and placed in a manger, surrounded by unacceptable low lives, according to society, and it declares to us the love of God because He chose to be born in a stable, so that those who are feeling unstable in any way would recognize that they are welcome to come. Christianity may be considered narrow for many, and yet there is nobody that is outside of the love of God and his acceptance. Paul calls us to consider the length of the love of God. Jesus appearing in Bethlehem 2,000 some years ago was not some sudden inspiration. In fact, the planning had gone on for a long, long time for that first advent. 450 years prior to the birth of Christ, Gabriel, who, if you read about him in the scripture, he just seems to have a big mouth. Everywhere he's going, he's telling us secrets of stuff that's going to happen, and then was the one who announced. So some have referred to him as Gabriel the big Mouth angel, but he went to Daniel to give him a revelation. In Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel says this, No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, until he comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. I'm not going to get into the math and all the symbol, but the fact is 450 years prior to the actual birth of Christ. God was already planning to send Jesus in order that we might be able to have some understanding of his love. 450 years in advance, a 450-year plan. And yet the love of God goes back even longer than that. A few hundred years before Daniel, Isaiah was speaking of the plan that God had to send his son. about 700 B.C., His verses that we are familiar with, Isaiah declares, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And then surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. and So there's even 700 years before, we see not only the promise of the birth of Christ, but we are told of the purpose of the birth of Christ, that in Him, we would find the forgiveness of our sin because He would bear all the punishment that we deserve. But the plan goes back even longer than that. While the people were still wandering in the wilderness, God revealed that he would send one who would bring deliverance and healing. While the people were wandering in the wilderness, they tended to grumble and complain and they would sin against God. And they were also out wandering in a desert and God provided for them snakes. And many of them got bitten by snakes and died. We see this story recorded in in, um, Numbers 21. I'm going to ask if uh, you'd turn there with me as we consider God's revelation of the coming of Christ. I'll begin reading in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. In some ways, a rather bizarre story. But again, as the people had complained and griped and sinned against God, God sent serpents that would bite them. Some of them died as a consequence. And when the people recognized this was no way to live and they, uh, they recognized what they did, whether they actually met full repentance, who knows. But they definitely recognized and acknowledged and asked for Moses to pray for them. The Lord's solution was to take the very image of the thing that had afflicted them and to put it on a pole and lift it up high. And then the promise in a mystical way is Whoever is to look, whoever has been bitten, whoever is afflicted, cursed by the bite of the serpent, can look at the serpent that is made of bronze, lifted up high, and they will be healed. This is a picture. It's a clue of what God had planned. Because the serpent is a picture of Christ, for many that might be a little confusing because you say, "Calling Jesus a snake," I thought Satan was a snake. Now you're calling the hope of our salvation uh, to be a snake, and and if uh, that that does seem a little confusing, and if it wasn't actually here, uh, then you should be upset with me. But we got to work through what's here. But it is a picture of Christ, and so Jesus Himself alludes to this very incident when He's referring to Himself. Because in John three fourteen, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so Jesus is alluding back to that incident, this incident in Numbers 21, and saying, this is a picture, this is a precedent for the very purpose for which I was born. Just as the serpent was lifted up, then so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus be lifted up. The purpose of being lifted up is so that people would be healed. And yet, how does that relate to Jesus and being uh, becoming represented as a snake? As Paul told the Corinthians, God made him who know, knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Christ, who Himself is pure and holy and perfect, He became sin. He became cursed. He became the curse that we actually have been bitten by, sin. And the sin that was lifted up and and seen by seeing, believing, there is healing. Christ, represented by the snake, reminds us that he became sin. And by looking at him on the cross, recognizing that he was crucified there for us, we're healed by seeing him high and lifted up. The one who, although being perfect, was made a curse. But God's plan goes back even further than that. Even just outside of the garden, after Eve and Adam had fallen into sin, and the Lord is speaking with them, and then is speaking with the serpent in Genesis 3.15, God's promise and prophesy, first telling Eve, you would have children, and then telling the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The significance of that passage, theologians call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel or the first expression of the promise of grace through the giving of the gift of Jesus Christ. It is the first announcement, the first reason for hope and that promise is that a seed born of a woman and actually in this case the seed of the woman would destroy the power of the serpent of our enemy. And so it goes back almost to the very beginning. But Revelation 13 tells us that it goes back even further than that. Revelation thirteen eight tells us that the Lamb was slain even before the creation of the earth. So if you have a view of creation as a very young earth, it's quite impressive. God's plan before that. If you have an old earth view, I guess it's even more impressive to you. But before there was anything, God already knew the plan to express his love to you. It's amazing. In our church, in our families, we celebrate any great expressions of love at anniversaries, 25, 50 years, and in some cases in our church, 60, 70 years. And we ought to celebrate those because it is a demonstration of love and commitment to one another that is becoming, well, it's just rare regardless It's a demonstration, and the reason that we celebrate it, we are amazed by it, is because we recognize that the extent and the length of that love really shows the solidity of it and the commitment that is made. And while we're talking about celebrating 40 and 50 years, God's plan to demonstrate his love for you, God's love for you goes back even before there was anything. Incalculable. And God executed that plan that he had been planning from before he even created the earth. How long is the love of God? It is longer than there is anything. Paul calls us and wants us to understand the depth of Christ's love. So we ask the question, how low did Jesus go? To understand that, I guess we ought to think about it in this way. Jesus had a pretty good setup in heaven. I mean, oneness with his Father. The glory that he rightly possesses was recognized by everyone. Everyone. And he basked in the richness of his glory. He is God. And yet because he loved us, he left his home in glory, what I often refer to as leaving the ultimate gated community in order to come to the ultimate decaying community, in order to become like us, to experience our experience, and to set us free from the reality of the decay. I mean, you think about that for just a moment, and what a drop that is to go from heaven to this earth, especially when you consider this earth, in many ways, as just a tiny insignificant speck, at least in terms of size, compared to the cosmos. Astronomers tell us that from where we are sitting right now, it's approximately 93 million miles to the sun. Now... If 93 million miles was represented by the thickness of this one sheet of paper, it would take a stack of papers 71 feet high to reach the next nearest star, Alpha Centauri. To get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, if every piece of paper represented 93 million miles, it would take a stack of papers that is approximately 310 feet high, which is roughly the distance from here to Charlotte. Or it is the full length of I-81 in the state of Virginia from Bristol to Winchester. That's roughly that length of time. Stack of paper, that length, just to get to the end of our own galaxy. And to get to the end of the universe that we know or the known universe... Scientists tell us it would take a stack of paper 31 million miles high just to get to the point of what we know. And here this earth sits in the midst of all those cosmos, and we recognize that this earth is is really just a speck in comparison to the galaxy and to the universe that we don't even know. You can understand why the psalmist would declare, what is man that you would be mindful of us? And yet, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into creation, he was willing to become a speck in order to pay for your sin, and to secure your salvation. It's an incredible step down it, would be a greater, it was a greater step down than if you or I would somehow become roaches and then live eternity as a roach. After I got out of college, I thought I was done with, with roaches. You know, when I got married, I was quite sure I was done with roaches. And then we moved to Mississippi, where roaches are the size of small cars, and they fly. The thought struck me at one time while I was using my product endorsement, Bengal Roach Spray. They don't sell around here. Get it online. It works if you have roaches. As I was trying to eradicate this species from my life, it just struck me in saying, what if God was to speak to me and say, I love roaches, and I want roaches to know of my love. And I want to use you. You keep praying. You want to be used. I want to use you to demonstrate my love to roaches. And so here's the plan. You are going to become a roach. And you're going to live among them and demonstrate and tell them of my love for, the people, for them. Now, the roaches are not going to understand, and they're going to kill you. You'll rise again, though. But then you'll live for all eternity as a roach. Quite honestly, I can't think of anything that would less appeal to me. And yet the reality is that for you or me to become a roach is less of a step down than for Christ to become like us. Now, don't get me wrong. I firmly believe God said man is created after the image of God. But we are creation, as is every other species that lives. We are creation, and as large of a gap as there is between us and a roach, Christ is the creator, and he's God. He's not part of creation, but he became part of creation. He became a creature like us, even though he himself is the creator, and that is a greater step down, and if you or I would be able to become some species that we despise. So if you don't think of anything else this Christmas season, consider this. Jesus, the creator of the universe, became creature like you, because he wanted to show you his love through his life and his death. Height of God's love. How high does his heart go? Lift your eyes a little bit to the hill in Calvary and to see the cross. Seeing Christ high and lifted up is the most vivid reminder of His love for us. Whenever we doubt that God loves us, it's not a matter of our behavior. It's a matter of whether Christ actually died for us on the cross. And So to understand how high we look up and we see Christ lifted up. I invite you to lift your eyes up a little bit higher even still and higher to the clouds because as Christ was ascending in the clouds, He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Essentially what he's declared and through the promise of the scripture, he's saying, I'm going to prepare a honeymoon cottage for you because the promise is Christ and his church it's his bride will be dwelling together in perfect unity for all eternity. And Jesus says, even as he's explaining what was going on to his disciples in John 14, he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. And so how high is the love of God? He has gone even ascending in the clouds. And you lift your eyes up to the clouds and recognize that is a reminder of Christ's love for you. I invite you to lift them up even a little bit higher than that into heaven itself. Because the scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father ever living to intercede for us. Recognize what that means. It means... That Jesus is praying for you. Perpetually praying for you. It means that he is vividly aware of your present circumstance, whatever it may be. And he is speaking to God the Father about it. As an expression of his love. Hebrews says he lives for this. This is this is what he this is his life. It's amazing to me that he doesn't just say, look, I saved you. That ought to be enough. But the passion of his heart is to know your circumstance, to speak to God the Father, a full identity, as a demonstration and expression of his love. Paul's prayer for us is that we would grasp the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, even as we talked about these different dimensions and certain facts that go along with them, the issue is not just to learn these things, but to understand in a deep way. Some time ago I read of a Frenchman named Marcel de Leclore, who in 1875 wanted to express his love for a young aristocratic woman. So he decided to write her a letter with the phrase, Je vous aime" or I love you, 1,000 times for each year of the calendar. It was 1875. Math people can figure it out like that. I had to calculate it, but that would be 1,875,000 times, je vous aime." And he didn't just want to write it down, but he wanted to present it in the finest of writing, and so he hired a scribe to write it in calligraphy. And he didn't just give the instruction, okay, here's what I want. Bring it back when you're done. But he dictated it 1,875,000 times. And when it was completed, he asked the scribe to read it back to him 1,875,000 times. Now, ladies, I don't know how you would respond. It would seem hard for me to imagine that you wouldn't be impressed at this demonstration of love. And she may very well have been impressed, but she said no anyway. She had no interest in this guy. Perhaps because he needed to get a life. Anybody Who's got the time to write something down? 1,875,000 times it is just one word. But you know, that is a reality of you and me. See, we know all of these facts. The demonstration that God has vividly given to us is all around us that he's loved us. And we know it and we may be impressed, but it doesn't necessarily grip our hearts. And so our hearts are prone to wander elsewhere. We want God to show us something else. It just doesn't get us. And the reason is, is because we know that's not what Paul is saying that he wants us to know, but to understand in a way that surpasses knowledge. In other words, we just need to instinctively, we need to inherently understand. It's a comprehension question. And mere knowledge, while it's helpful and points us, it's not enough. Carolyn was known through, as our children were growing up, for her peanut butter bars. When we were in youth ministry, people who were impacted by our youth ministry had her peanut butter bars. When we had our children were growing up, feeding football teams peanut butter bars. Even college, Emery and Henry, the football team there was aware of Carolyn's peanut butter bars. And sometimes when people that she has known from one of those places, they'll ask her uh, for if she's going to make her peanut butter bars. Now, I could invite her up and she could explain to you this morning about her peanut butter bars, about you know, where she got the recipe and Everything that is in the recipe and the process and the temperature you need to bake it and what kind of pan and all that. She could give you every detail related to it. And while you would gain some level of knowledge, you wouldn't know. The only way for you to know and to understand and appreciate it is if you were to get a hold of one of those and then sink your teeth into it and then allow it to uh, your palate to taste it. It's the only way that you're really going to be able to understand why the people who have liked those peanut butter bars. And the same thing is true for our relationship with Christ and understanding the love. We can know all the theological tidbits of God's election and God's demonstration and the substitutionary atonement. We can pull all of those things out and remind us. And they're vitally important for us to understand. But other than experiencing it, without experiencing it, without taking a bite of it, we don't. The Scripture says, taste and see that God is good. And what that means is to enjoy the love of God, to experience it, not just learn about it, whether that's in worship and actually engaging in worship, recognizing that God is here and that we who are broken are invited and will be healed and made what we need to be. It could be through your Bible study. It could be through prayer and fellowship with other people. In all of those, God has promised to be present and that he will be at work and we get to experience a taste of his love through them. And My hope for us during this Advent season is that we be a people who would taste and see that God is good, that we may know something of the height and the depth and the length and the width of the love of God that is yours in Christ, who was given to us as we celebrate this season.